0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Let's not waste any time. Right. Now, you remember, I think the last movie I talked about last week on the movie journal uh was billy wilder's the seven-year itch sure and it was a big disappointment to me mm-hmm. as a billy wilder fan uh, and as a Marilyn monroe fan uh although not so much as a Marilyn monroe fan she's great in the movie because she was always great uh so i went home that night and watched some like it hot okay <laughs> just sort of like as a palate cleanser sure um and uh, uh i'm less into you know so, a lot of times when i do rewatches i don't necessarily mention them on the on the journal unless i have something specifically to say about mm-hmm. them uh here i'm bringing up some like it hot i rewatched it but i mostly want to talk about it with you okay. because i know that you're not a big fan i'm not so um, what is it having rewatched it and like i'm like yep tyler's
1: nuts this is so good i well i'll i'll be honest madcap zany jack lemon has never done it for me okay um and that's what he is um yeah in that i I can't say he's overdoing it or anything like that it's just not a thing that i enjoy and and the idea and it's just i think the tone of it the type of jokes that are in it aside from tony curtis essentially being cary grant which is hilarious which is hilarious um aside from that it's just it has never i've seen it i think three times it has never worked for me for a while because I saw it in high school I was like I don't really like this and then in college I tried it again it's like I still don't like this and then like 10 years later I thought I was probably just young and stupid and then I watched it and I was like I guess I'm still stupid because <laughs> it's just not I wanted to I want to love it don't get me wrong but I just uh, I just can't um,
0: uh, my my thoughts on rewatching it this time the first thing I think that I don't really think about when I watch it is that it is, yeah. It's like a madcap comedy, mm-hmm. but I forget how much of it is a gangster movie and how it kind of like doesn't it doesn't shortcut the gangster stuff at least right. at the beginning. Like right. it opens with a pretty awesome car chase um, and shootout, mm-hmm. and then it gets into the St. Valentine's Day massacre right. uh, stuff, and then some of the funniest stuff in the second half is the weird coincidence that they happen to be having the like nationwide gangsters conference at the same yes. hotel. Um, and that all that stuff with the conference is hilarious to me, especially whoever the big, I can't remember the actor's name. Who's like the main right kingpin of the whole thing. And, um, he's very funny when he's like, uh, what he? he's like, we made $142 million last year before taxes, but we didn't pay any
1: taxes. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's funny. I didn't remember that one. And here's the thing is that like so much of what you said, like even the idea it's, it's so very Billy Wilder uh, that, all right, we're going to have a comedy. It's going to start with a massacre, a well known a real life. Mas- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Full on massacre. Uh, and then it's time for some zaniness. Um, so like so much of that, so much of the concept of it is my kind of thing. And yet, just the 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 tone of it, stuff like that is is good. And and I might have, I say more of an appreciation. It was like three years ago. <laughs> I haven't changed that much as a person. Um, I don't know. Maybe I, you know what? I'm going to give it one more chance. Okay. <laughs> Sometime between now and and uh, when I'm gone.
0: I also like. I, I feel like I talk about on the on the podcast. Because one of the things, one of my little rituals after I've seen a movie, not immediately after, but sometimes a day or a day or two after, is I like to check out the IMDb trivia page. Even though I know, as I always say, like, a lot of that stuff you have to take the grain of salt. But um, the seven-year-inch one said that Billy Wilder wanted to make it in black and white, but Marilyn Monroe contractually, Hmm. at that time, only made movies in color. Interesting. But something like it hot is after seven year itch and is in black and white. Yeah. And so I wonder what changed, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's, that's true. Did that's her, strange. yeah. Did her, did she lose clout? Maybe it seems unlikely. Yeah. Or maybe she just changed her mind. Anyway, maybe she wanted to work with Billy Wilder again. I, and he was like, be. he was like, this is, you can, you know, I'd love to work with you
1: again, but this is, we're making this movie in black and white. It could be that it could be that she, stopped maybe not stop but like she'd been Marilyn Monroe like the icon for so long and maybe by working with a real director um I'll be in an apparently a mediocre film um seven year rich I mean yeah did, no, I know what you mean he did that one first right yeah um maybe by working with a real director who treated maybe treated her as an actress instead of a star maybe she was inspired by that. And it's like, I want to work with you again. Is like, well, I want to shoot this in black white. Okay, fine.
0: Yeah. Well, she's, she's amazing in the movie. She's well, we'll talk about this later when we get to another actress, but like I found myself, Margot Martindale, no, another, uh, actress from this era or an earlier era. And I found myself having the thought, that I hate because I hate this way of thinking, but literally thinking like they don't make them like this anymore. Like there are, there's a certain type of screen presence that I wonder if like, as much as like the rise of method acting gave us so many great performances. I wonder if it took away a certain glow that we can't seem to get back. Well, the aforementioned
1: Cary Grant. (laughs) Yeah. We'll talk about him in a bit. Like we can, like we, we can talk about like, you know, who's like the modern, like Humphrey Bogart, because I think that some of his, acting style and certainly a lot of his vibe on screen is something that has been echoed uh in throughout various eras but somebody like a Cary Grant and an argument could be made even somebody like a Katherine Hepburn a very and both of them have a very specific way of Mm -hmm. speaking and then Marilyn Monroe has a very specific presence and I do wonder in her case let's let's look in all of the cases you don't get much more highbrow, or one could say yar, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, than Catherine Hepburn and uh, Cary Grant, and I feel like that type of actor that that speaks in that way. I don't think that would be tolerated anymore because it's just like, ugh, why do I want to want to watch these rich people unless it's Downton Abbey, obviously? Um, yeah, and then I think unless they're our, British,
0: maybe unless they're British, because Tom Hiddleston seems to get away with it, and he's sure. like, he's, he's 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 like a blue blood.
1: But you know what he can. St- but because and he's Benedict in, because he- yeah, that's true. Um, but Tom Hilston, like, well, he's still in good old American Avengers movies, uh-huh. so that's all that matters. <laughs> um, and I think an argument could be made that the the persona of Marilyn Monroe might not be tolerated anymore either, because while she never comes across as dumb, it is seen- it, it she often comes across as I am first and foremost a very specific type of sex, uh, sex object. Hmm. Um, and I think people would find that offensive now. And so I don't know if anybody, if there was somebody who put themselves out there as that, and al- almost exclusively that I feel like people wouldn't go for it. Like, listen to the, look, I recognize Megan Fox as no Marilyn Monroe, but that is the way people <laughs> I was
0: going to say Megan yeah. Fox.
1: Cause that's like, you and I know that about her and I've never heard anybody say any good, anything good about her, except that she's attractive, but nobody, people laugh at the idea of her being in movies. Oh, yeah.
0: I'm trying to think what I've actually seen Megan Fox in. This is 40, I think, is the only thing I can think of off the top of my head.
1: She's in the first Transformers, right? Yeah, she yeah I She so. played April, April O'Neil in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies, the second of which I saw. Uh, and then she had like a four or five episode arc on uh, New Girl. Oh. So. Um she yeah, I don't was, have any she really was actually on her. the new girl because Zoe Deschanel was pregnant and so her character was sequestered uh, <laughs> as part of a jury so she couldn't be seen so um, they brought in that new,
0: reminds me girl. of a story now I know you have watched I haven't watched all of them but you've watched a number of the comedians in cars getting coffee oh yes did you see the one with with Julie Louis-Dreyfus absolutely so Jerry tells a story about the season of Seinfeld when Julie Louis-Dreyfus was pregnant and she told jerry and larry hey here's what's going on you know and jerry's (laughs) reaction was what if instead of trying to hide it we just do a storyline where (laughs) elaine gets really fat for no reason all of a sudden (laughs) (laughs) and julie lou Travis apparently burst into tears and jerry simon was immediately like i'm sorry no we won't do it and like in the present day though in the comedians of cars getting coffee she was like we should have done it would have been pretty funny (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) and and in that comedians and by the way apparently uh this month, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee is going to be on Netflix, oh. which is very exciting. Uh, in that one, the two of them are driving along, and they happen to pass Hillary Swank going the other way, who, like, <laughs> shouts something at them, and they're like, what? <laughs>
0: like, it's just it's delightful. That reminds me, speaking of that show, I... I might've said this on the the podcast before, but like living in Los Angeles, every time I see someone driving around in a dumb car, I think, I wonder if that's Jay Leno and about half the time it's Jay Leno. (laughs) 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 Um, and I think it's because he, I think he lives in the neighborhood where I work. So I think I see him in the mornings a lot. Um, so it's that kind of coincidence, but it does happen a lot where I'll see on Coldwater or Mulholland, I'll see a car coming toward me look some old like Duesenberg or whatever. Yeah. And I'll be like, but that's Jay Leno. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, all right, let's move on to another movie. Uh, I watched a documentary. Uh, it's about an hour long. So I'm not sure if you call that like a, is that a long short doc or is that a short feature? I'm not sure. Ugh, that's um,
1: I'd say short feature.
0: Um, it's a documentary, uh, called stream of love that is a series of interviews with um mostly septuagenarian and octogenarian widows and widowers in a tiny rural hungarian town Mm -hmm. and it's just you know people in their 70s and 80s talking about love and sex and dating and romance and relationships and marriage. Mm-hmm. And it's so fascinating because it's so incredibly, they're so Frank, so much more Frank than you would expect. But then also some of them have, it's like have what we would think is more old timey. Sure. Like there are some of them, who, like one of them is telling the other, the other two women like her just describing her masturbation technique. Mm. And other women are like, they think it's kind of funny, but the ones like, I won't do that. Like I'm not like as opposed Mm. to masturbation. And the one was just like, I can't get there without sweetness and kisses and tenderness or whatever like that. But it's like to hear the three women in their eighties just talking about masturbation. And, but then it also gets to some, you know, they talk about, um, their, their marriages. One guy, uh, this is a, just a, a gutting story. Um, talks about his marriage mm. and how his wife cheated on him constantly with with neighbors and with the hired. They ran a farm and the hired like hands the oh, wow. whatever. She would just cheat on him constantly. And he knew was he was living
1: in a Harlequin romance novel
0: <laughs> and he would always forgive her. And then she got sick and he spent the last two years of her life taking care of her even when she became paralyzed almost Mm -hmm. you know feeding her and everything and the last thing she said to him was i never could stand you and he said, if you could stand me... His, here's what he says in the movie. If you couldn't stand me, why did you stay with me? And then she passed on.
1: Hmm. <laughs> that, that, As if to just, say, good point. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> I'm out of
0: here. Right. And then like the next scene will be just funny ladies laughing about sex or whatever. It's such yeah. a fascinating documentary. Yeah. Um, I would definitely recommend uh, checking it out. It goes to some of the, I don't want to just talk about the harrowing stuff, but there's like another woman who talks about when she was a teenager, her family for money essentially sent her to work as a maid in a rich mm-hmm. person's house. And like night one, the rich person, the rich guy came, the came in and tried to rape her, yeah, yeah. uh, when she was like 14 years old. Um, I, the, I guess the happy ending is that he, she banged on the wall and shouted help and he went away. So <laughs> she didn't get raped. Thank God. Yeah. But like, uh, it's just the, what
1: a the, success story.
0: <laughs> yeah, but the fact that the, the, this movie just goes back and forth through these stories, like that, God, that's awful, or God, yeah. that's cute. But it's really just very human, and I think, I, I think, um, um, you know, I, I think one of them says which is kind of i think gets to the point of the movie one of them just offhandedly says why doesn't god take the desire when the ability goes away mm. it's, a, it's about a guy it's a guy talking about not being able to get a heart on sure. it anymore sure. uh and i think that's really what the movie is about is that sex and all of the things around sex are a part of humanity and not just a part of youth yeah uh, it's, it's a really interesting stream of love. It's a really interesting. Documentary. Um, and then, uh, I, this will be the first of three of these types of movies. And even though this all came, um, after Christmas, uh, I, I watched some Christmas horror movies. Okay. Um, cause I was just in the mood and I had that most of that week in between Christmas and New Year's off. Uh, and so I rewatched, um, black Christmas,
1: Okay, which is uh, something you saw it for the first time somewhat recently, correct? Yeah,
0: in 2017, yeah. definitely. Um, because Scream Factory put out a great Blu-ray, right. uh, and so I watched that again. Um, it's such a terrific movie. Um, it's it's so interesting. And there'll be another one later on this list. Um and I think this is what I said back when I first saw it. It's just interesting to see a slasher movie before the slasher movie, like blueprint was, Mm -hmm. you know, completely codified. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, And and so it is, uh, it is a slasher movie, um, but it doesn't, uh, you know, and it's also kind of a whodunit. I think we talked about, but not, not it, it subverts that without giving away the ending. It kind of subverts the whodunitness of it. Um, But it's also like a really like, frank dark comedy mm-hmm. um like margot kidder she is just she's such a bee in this movie <laughs> <laughs> and it's just interesting to see her you know yeah um you think of her as i guess so all-american and she's like yeah she's like the bad girl in the movie nice. you know um and she's not i don't just mean that she's like she drinks and is promiscuous and that's Fine, uh, but this is before like the 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 uh, Randy from Scream rules about yeah. if you're promiscuous you die. I mean, she does die in the movie, but there's no correlation. Right. Like the first, the first girl to die is like the the nicest, you know, yeah. uh, most uh, puritan puritanical. Of them. Um, yeah, I mean not entirely, but yeah. Oh, okay. Um, but she also said like uh, you know they're sorority girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this college, and one of them says, "Like we should be scared going out." Did you hear? One of the one of the town girls was raped last week, and Roro kiddo 's character says, "Oh, you can't rape a townie." <laughs> <laughs> it's like awful, wow. <laughs> right? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but then it also, I think, and again, I'm going to repeat myself from what I said, however many months ago, um but. The way that, again, because we now have an idea of what a Slash movie is, especially a Slash movie that takes place in a sorority house, yeah. it's shocking how much it's not an exploitation movie. Sure. I mean, in terms of the blood and stuff, but in, like, there, I don't think there's any nudity in it. There's not really that, it's not that kind of, it's not sexploitation at okay. all, um, which, you know, you think it's going to be like, you know, girls in, you know, lingerie or whatever, right. you know, getting chased around and screaming. Uh, it's not that at all. Yeah. Um, it, it's, really, it's a really interesting movie, and uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and nasty fun, but fun. All
1: right, your turn. David, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, Seinfeld, and you mentioned um, Julia Louis-Dreyfus as Elaine, because the movie I saw was Get Out. Um, <laughs> so... You're welcome for that. Um, Absolutely. So yes, I finally, a long last, saw Jordan Peele's Get Out. That's I was, funny, you know, because
0: I I actually rewatched it. Um, right. I wasn't on my. I wasn't going to m- mention it, but okay. uh, yeah, I rewatched it just in the night.
1: Uh, it was just it was one of those movies that like I just didn't get a chance to see at the time, and then I kept putting it off partially because, like, it was just everyone was talking about it. And I was like, ah, I feel like i got to wait for some of this hype to die down a little bit. And I think, aside from it winning a number of critics' awards and, and people still talking about it, I feel like, or maybe it's just that I haven't been to school in a while and people were talking about it a lot at mm. school. Um, so it's like, okay, it just it doesn't... I didn't feel like I was so inundated with it. And so I finally watched it, and uh, yeah, it's great. Um, <laughs> I do think... first off from a directorial standpoint, I think I mentioned this last week uh, or sometime recently. I don't remember exactly, but directorially it's like right up there with something like 10 Cloverfield line, 10 Cloverfield lane as far as debuts. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, it's, it's astonishing to me, like how assured he is with the camera and how he is ambitious. Like, you know, the, the sunken place and all that is just such a, you know, harken back a lot to uh uh un, under the skin but um but still like his he didn't have to do that he didn't have to do that effect mm-hmm. he could he still could have done amazing things with uh that great lead performance but uh, he chose to represent it in other ways and i thought that was really great um and i think just the the tone and mood works really well I think the script is structured interestingly. I think there are scenes that are written extremely well. I think the initial hyp- hypnosis scene is beautifully written, beautifully played. It like that is it's everything a film can be from cinematography, editing, dialogue, acting, uh, score. Like mm-hmm. it's sound design, especially mm-hmm. teacup. Um, it's great. Yeah. Uh, structure. It reminds me a lot of Rosemary's Baby. Um, I don't think that's an accident. Not at all. And I wouldn't say he's ripping it off. I think he saw that, like, ultimately it's this idea of, I mean, it's very Polanski-esque in a lot of ways that, like, just there's somebody who has connections with people only to find, no, you're completely alone and beyond. And along with that, everyone is against you. And everyone has a vested interest in you being destroyed in some way. Um, but like Rosemary's baby, most of the horror comes from revelation, comes from characters being told something or being shown something. And in the case of get out, I think it's mostly being told something, um, which is not necessarily a flaw when the something is that interesting, Mm -hmm. which it is. Um, but uh but yeah so so i it's in my top 10 i really really like it i think acting is great all the way through uh i can tell you that uh you know the the bp's submissions are coming up Uh and the film's going to be in a bunch of them most especially i would say the bruce mcgill award for old steven root oh he's great I I mean, I always like him, but there's just like the way he carries himself and what his character is, I think, is so key.
0: So for those who aren't familiar, the Bruce McGill Award is the award that the BPs do every year uh, for best performance under 15 minutes of screen time.
1: 15 minutes,
0: 15 minutes ish. Um, But I wonder, should there be a limit on how many scenes that can be stretched over Hmm. because Steven root is in three. I mean, the second one, he doesn't actually have any dialogue, but he's in three scenes off the top of my head. And that seems to me, it seems like he's in the movie more than he is. You're right. It's probably under 15 minutes, but it feels like more because he's a presence for a lot of the second half of the movie.
1: Yeah. And when you think about like, he's part of a crowd and even when he's not Mm -hmm. on screen, you know that he's just there. Yeah. And he's part of the crowd and because he is such a vital part of the story when you think back on it well surely he must be uh as uh, like a bigger part of the story than he actually is uh, as far as screen time um but yeah I, I and i'll say this i mean obviously there's a lot of political stuff going on in that movie uh that i thought was fascinating and I know that you mentioned this when you first saw the film that like you as a white liberal Mm -hmm. felt like had a lot of reactions to it and I definitely know that and I think that probably colored some of my um, some of my not even opinion but I guess just instinct or or, or interpretation um, when watching it so I couldn't get that out of my mind but I think even without that I, I would see that like okay yeah this is this is very much uh, this is not about general racism, nor is it a swipe despite it being essentially on a plantation. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily a swipe at the South or like more, more conventional. I mean, it's supposed to be the Northeast, right? Yeah, but it's the way it looks is still, and certainly the way the uh, certain characters are dressed. Mm. It definitely feels Southern. Um, uh and maybe it's supposed to evoke that in the midst of the most like l- you know dirty country, country in many country. ways yeah, yeah yeah um and i thought that was yeah. really fascinating and i have some thoughts about that but i've been going on for a while
0: uh the last thing i'll say in terms of uh you mentioned screenplay and editing and i think those things stood out to me so much the second time because of i rewatched it like i threw it in And then it was over. (laughs) Like, the movie, it moves so quickly. Yeah. Uh, And not in a rushed way. I mean, it moves so smoothly.
1: It's, uh, again, like you were saying, it's incredibly assured. I will say, uh, fun fact, I think I might have, as a function of this film, a new least favorite actor. (laughs) Is
0: it Caleb Landry Jones? It sure
1: is. (laughs) But at the same time, I didn't think he was so bad in... um, Three billboards, but in this, like, man, going back to that phrase that we've talked about before, I saw every single string. Mm. I yeah. saw every decision being made. I saw, like, it's like, are you are you paid by the Twitch? Because I don't know. It's uh, it was really distracting.
0: All right, let's move on to Carrie Grant. Okay, um, so. Um, as we talked about last week, my wife and I have Movie Pass, mm-hmm. and Movie Pass here in Los Angeles doesn't just work at your mainstream theaters; it also right. works at the American Cinematheque theaters yeah. in the New Beverly. I haven't used the New Beverly yet, so my wife, my wife and I went to the Arrow in Santa Monica to see a Howard Hawks double feature. Right. Um, the first one was His Girl Friday, uh, which I'd never seen. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd seen the front page, which it's a remake, or it's. I guess it's not a remake of the front page, of the movie, as much as it's they're both based on the play, the front page. Yes. for whatever that's. Uh, but the difference um, between *His Girl Friday* and the front page is that they change the lead character to be a woman. Yeah, and it uh, uh, it it makes all the difference. Not that the front page, I think, is great, but the front page page is um like unrelentingly cynical, <laughs> and I think having a love story, even though it is kind of a uh, often like intentionally anti-romantic love story yeah um it gives it something nice to wrap up with sure um even though meanwhile it's picture of the judicial system the government the press all the institutions it's like it's like a season of the wire (laughs) this would be like (laughs) it's it's uh it's it's so not not uh a rosy picture and it has so much dark humor have you seen it Uh, uh wait the front page uh either one uh, I've seen
1: his girl Friday. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. His girl Friday. It, it, like there's a, th- there, in both of them, there's a scene where a character suddenly jumps out a window to kill herself. And it's a laugh, like it's a yeah. laugh line. <laughs> or it's, it's a laugh beat. That's the kind of movie we're talking about. Um, but it's, uh, um, uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, Howard Hawks, I think is, has become, I think one of my, if I were to do a list of, 10 favorite directors. I would probably at this point put Howard Hawk. I wouldn't have maybe 10 years ago when we first were yeah. doing this podcast because I've been, been making more of an effort over that. I made a new year's resolution, new year's 2015 yeah. to watch more old movies. Cause I used to do that when we lived together and I had your movie collection to yeah. go through. Uh, and I'd kind of, especially since we started doing like you reviews still have access and stuff to my movie collection, uh, by the way. Yeah. But I have no, enough, you know, I know I have, you know, movie and film struck and Fandor,
1: So I've got, money. Um, is it stressful when you just see how much, um, access I, I have? have
0: lists that help me keep the stress at bay. Okay. Um, anyway, um, there's something I was going to say and I forgot what it was oh, sorry. Um, about seeing old movies. Uh, oh yeah. I just Howard Hawks and, and, having seen this year alone, having seen, uh, I saw 20th century at, um, TCM fest and now his girl Friday and the next one. He's just, he's just terrific. Um, Have you seen red river? I've never seen red river. I've never seen it's Rio marvelous. Bravo
1: either. Cause so I've never, I, I guess I don't know his Westerns. I saw, I haven't seen Rio Bravo. Um, I saw El Dorado. Uh, But not Rio Bravo. Uh, Red River is... I got it for Christmas. I hadn't seen it, and I just put it on the list because I thought maybe it would be interesting. It is so amazing. I cannot recommend it highly enough.
0: Um, The only thing I know are all the stories because I read a biography of Montgomery Clift and how much John Wayne did not like Montgomery Clift. I could see that. (laughs) Um, So yeah, His girlfriend is great. But let me... This is all... Uh, 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 preamble to mm-hmm. say that the second half of this bill. Okay, you think Howard Hawks? There's a bunch of movies you think of, right? A lot of these comedies mm-hmm. and the and the westerns and stuff. And for some reason, there's a movie that never seems to come up on the top tier. Mm-hmm. It's a movie called Ball of Fire. Okay, have you seen it? I haven't. Okay, G- sit down. Strap it. Hang on. Okay. All right. So the leads are Gary Cooper and Barbara Stanwyck. Okay. Which, by the way, puts another Barbara Stanwyck me on the notch. when all we right. did our, we got a lot of guff from our yeah. classic movie fan listeners when we did our top actresses of all time yeah. list, uh, and we uh, that were voted on by our listeners. And neither of us were that familiar outside of Double Indemnity and maybe like Bitter bitter tea of general yen yeah. w- with Barbara Stanwyck's work. So now I have another Barbara Stanwyck and this is what I was saying earlier about Marilyn Monroe, Marilyn Monroe. Like they don't make them like this anymore. Like mm-hmm. she's magnetic in this movie. Uh, so you've got Gary Cooper and Barbara Stanwyck, Howard Hawks is directing. You've got a uh, story by Billy Wilder. All right. Um, uh, costumes by Edith head, and cinematography by Greg Toland. Wow. <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> and you've also got w- one of the first film appearances of Dan Duryea. Oh yeah. Um who would go on to be a noir staple. Uh yeah. and here he's playing a gangster named Pastrami. <laughs> 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 Uh, and also, uh, there's an actor y- you probably know, you know, um, uh, his name's like S K Sakal or whatever. He's a, uh, oh, he's in yeah, Casablanca. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's so the, it, it, this movie is so, it, it might be my favorite Howard Hawks movie. It's wow. so amazing. It's so funny. It's so lively. It's also so beautiful well,
1: and touching be expected.
0: The the premise it's a it's a screwball premise if there ever was one. It's essentially, you know, um sister act fifty years beforehand. Um where Barbara Sandwich plays like a you know, gangster's mall or whatever. Yeah. Um and she uh, only she's not hiding from the gangsters. The gangsters have her hiding from the cops. Okay. Because she knows the one thing, like she's the connection between her boyfriend and a bunch of dead bodies or whatever. So they're hiding her away. Yeah. So they have to. And so she ends up staying at this house that is like this sort of eccentric billionaire's family has this house that has eight, um, Uh, intellectuals in it writing an encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. So they've been living in this house for years. They live and work in the house. All they do is research stuff and write articles for an encyclopedia that's going to come out someday. And so she uh, ends up moving in with, uh, under the guise of being like a a connection because Gary Cooper's character who's the linguist or grammarist Mm -hmm. of the group is writing about slang. And so she being connected to the underworld is supposed to be his uh, you know, the woman who, you know, his connection to the world of, of slang. So the movie is filled with delightful dialogue and yeah. slang terms that haven't, you know, uh, haven't, you know, lasted. Yeah. But are still a lot of fun to hear, you know, when she uh, when she calls him Crabapple Annie. It's very <laughs> funny. Um, there's also a really like it, but the movie is so smart, too, in the dialogue. Like she the, there's a scene that like. Very quickly in a, in a very in a, in a, with a lot of economies sort of boils down what it means when people say things are corny, okay. which can mean a number of different things, and the movie manages to sum them all up into one thing it 's a, a brilliant script yeah um, and i 'm a big Gary cooper fan uh, in general um, uh, but then it also like the romance is very sweet and there 's also there 's a scene in this movie. Tyler that okay. I was like I almost wanted to look around I was like I can't believe this scene it's so beautiful hmm. where because it, you've got Gary Cooper and you've got the other seven nerds and they're all older sure. he's the young one they're all older uh, okay. even though a couple of the actors are younger than Gary Cooper and sure. are just in like you know there's aged up with like white hair or he whatever. never
1: really reads young
0: <laughs> right um, yeah um, and so they're like comic relief the whole time and then there's this scene late at night when they've all had a couple of drinks. I'm not big drinker. So a couple of drinks goes a long way yeah. with them. And the one who's like the silliest of them, who has the very snooty, who talks like this, you know, mm-hmm. he's the only one. And the rest of them are all, you know, longtime bachelors because they're such nerds or whatever, but he's the widower. And he like starts talking about his late wife. Mm-hmm. And the, there was a, a, I guess a popular song in the teens or twenties or whatever, when he was married to her, that had her name in it and the other guys know it. And they like, sing the song for him at dinner. And he's like, And he's like, okay. He's like, thank you. Keep singing. I'm going to go to bed. And so he just sort of walks away and goes
1: to his bedroom while these guys are singing this beautiful song. It's a beautiful scene. You don't associate that kind of thing with Howard Hawks, honestly. Like, I I think of him as, well, and written by Billy Wilder on top of everything else. Like, story by Billy Wilder. Story by Billy Wilder. Yeah. Okay. Um, But yeah, I usually... Apparently he he initially wrote it in German. Um, Oh, okay. uh, Yeah. Uh,
0: And so the screenplay is by someone who... Translated it and I guess added all the English language right. slang.
1: Yeah, it's uh, usually think of Hawks as like a kind of a hard bitten type, mm-hmm. um, but that's uh, nicely sentimental well. I don't know. I mean, he's also you know the king of Screwball as well, but but I don't think of Screwball
0: as sentimental either. No, mean, no, yeah, but I don't think of it as hard bitten. I guess, but no, yeah, yeah not true. not yeah. sentimental. Yeah, yeah Screwball is definitely not sentimental. Um, oh, you know what? There's one thing I want to go back to his Girl Friday. Okay, <laughs> to a thing that I did think was dumb. Um, Because we talked about Seven Year Itch last week when Tom Yule is like, for all I know, for all you know, Marilyn Monroe could be in there. Yeah. So there's a scene in His Girl Friday. I don't know if you remember this when he, Cary Grant is telling the woman to go pretend to be a prostitute and try and pick up Rosalind Russell's fiance to get him out of the picture mm-hmm. or whatever. And she says, What does he look like? And Cary Grant's like, He looks like that fellow from the pictures, Ralph Bellamy, which yeah. is who's obviously that's yeah. who's playing him.
1: It's. <laughs> The reason that is funny is because <laughs> who cares about Ralph Bellamy? <laughs> I, I, he's an actor I like, but I do like that. I like that he's, he's like, that, he's that fellow from the pictures. And I don't know how many, I don't know how big of a star Ralph Bellamy was at the time.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess you would have, I'm getting, I'm getting confused on years cause he was also in the awful truth with Cary Grant. Okay. And I think, bef- I think that's before his girl Friday, but I okay. could be wrong.
1: I know he was in like the Wolfman and that sort of thing, but, uh, to me that I, I probably would not have, uh, I don't, I generally don't like that kind of humor, Yeah. but I will say that if you're going to do it, I like the idea of doing it with a possibly lesser known actor. And it might be that he wasn't lesser known, but he is, He's lesser known to us now.
0: Right. Uh, and ag- uh, again, IMDb trivia page, you don't know if this is true, but apparently the producer hated that line, but it, t- it did so well in test screenings. That they, they had to leave in test. audiences loved it. <laughs> of course they did. <laughs> um, was that three? I think um, you've got one more. I've got, uh, oh, I do have one more. Okay. This is, <laughs> this is, I think all my only like 2017 movie on the whole list today. Um, and I don't know why I wasted my time. Uh, I watched, the Ballad of Lefty Brown. Okay. Which, I, you know, I like Westerns. Yeah. Um, I know nothing about this movie. Uh, okay, so this is one of those movies that I think... This happens a lot on the Movie Journal, where I don't like a movie, and then I'll tell you the premise, and you'll be like, that sounds good. And that's what yeah. this is going to be. It sounds good.
1: Yeah. Okay, you've got... Some of the best movies ever made uh, have <laughs> a... Sorry, some of the worst movies ever made have a great premise. I mean, that's it what, what makes them wasted. so disappointed. Yeah,
0: disappointing. So you've got... Uh, uh, um, Bill Pullman is the lead. Okay. And the premise is that 20 years beforehand, he and Peter Fonda and Jim Caviezel and, um, who's the Irish actor with the, uh, Tommy Flanagan. Is that his name? Oh yeah. Yeah. I I, I think that's his name. They were lawmen who rode together and, and, Bill Pullman was if this were a movie about that group, Bill Pullman would have been the comic relief. The one they wanted to keep around. He's kind of a mascot, but he's okay. not that reliable. He's kind of a fuck up, but he's a nice guy. His heart's in a good in a good place. But that's forward to the present. One of them has died. One of them has become a drunk okay. and one of them is now a corrupt politician. And it's suddenly up to lefty the one who was the fuck up before mm-hmm. he's the only one with still enough moral standing and clear enough head to try and solve the murder of the one who was killed.
1: It's a good <laughs> premise. It's, isn't it? Yeah.
0: It's a, yeah, it's a great premise and the movie's not bad, bad. It's just like, it just doesn't do Enough with it, it feels it feels very by the numbers I mean in a sense, you could say if you are a big fan of Westerns, you could say this is a movie that is very respectful of the Western and its tropes mm-hmm. um, and that's and that 's true. It looks like a western it moves like a western, but it 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 doesn 't seem to have that much identity on its own. Um yeah. I also think the look of it is a little um yeah uh, th- again not bad. Nothing in the movie is really bad. It's just sort of um by the numbers is the the term I keep yeah. uh, coming back to. Um you've got and you've got, uh, and you've got an, an actress that I love um uh kathy Baker plays oh, yeah. uh the the widow of the one of them i don't want to say who it is um because they 're all still alive at the beginning of the movie and one of them dies very early on and that's kind of what kicks off the plot um she's the widow of one of the one of the four um and uh but even like and she 's good, but the way she 's written is just like like there's a scene of her walking around her the ranch that she and her husband own, mm-hmm. and suddenly she like is she sees a rattlesnake and the first thing she, and she like gasps for a second. Then she like wha- wha- whacks it over the head with her parasol, picks it up and breaks its neck. Yeah. And it's like, it, it, it's just, it's like character development just it it, it seems too on the nose yes to be like oh look at her in her parasol and dress and whatever what's she gonna do with this rattlesnake oh right she's a to use your term a hard-bitten woman of the west she's gonna break its fucking neck and go on about her day yeah um and there's just stuff like that that just seems like not particularly uh imaginative um and i think uh I, i don't like to talk ill of actors i don't think i'm a jim caviezel fan
1: I don't I probably don't th- I I don't think I am either. I'm not not that he's just I, he's a little bland for me and I think he's he's often cast well. Like he's kind of the perfect person to build the thin red line around. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah, that's true. And I think he's a good guy to build uh, the Passion of the Christ around because if you, if you play, if you use him right, his blandness can look almost ethereal, you know? <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. But, uh, he should be
0: in a David Lynch movie. Yeah. That oh would be, boy, a that good be great. Use. Yeah.
1: So, uh, but yeah, I think if he's doing anything even vaguely down to earth, which is of course what a Western's meant to be, uh, I'd say, yeah, I'm not a huge fan.
0: Uh, yeah. And he's, he's not being down to earth here. He's, he's going for the rafters, which is I think kind of, Uh, I think, I think Bill Pullman is good. And I think Tommy Flanagan is good. And I think the rest of them are playing too big, maybe because they're trying Mm -hmm. to find something in the dialogue. Whereas Bill Pullman and Tommy Flanagan are maybe, maybe playing the characters who have the most on the page,
1: the most they can fall back on. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's too bad. It's weird. I don't think of Peter Fonda as an over the top or or someone. I don't seem even doing that. I don't think I've ever seen him that way.
0: Um, yeah, maybe him too. Uh, yeah, I was going to say see the movie, but don't yeah, yeah, don't. don't buy it's. Not, again, it's not an awful movie. There are way worse movies. This is not going to be on my worst movies of twenty seventeen list. Even yeah. though we don't do that, we just do one worst
1: movie. Um, right, you
0: and I do the the,
1: the website does. Yes, uh, yeah, bottom it's, 10. it's
0: it's not going to be on on my list. Um, but it's just it's just real middle of the pack. Mm-hmm. All right,
1: now it's your turn, right? All right, this is a rewatch, kind of. Okay. All right. So, inspired by a recent episode, a somewhat recent episode of Musical Notation, hosted by West Anthony, sure. Um, I decided to uh, indulge uh, myself and do something I always wanted to do, which was I wanted to watch Alien with the isolated Jerry Goldsmith score. Oh, cool. so on that wonderful Blu-ray set that we mm-hmm. could talk so much about, um, they do, they do have that option. And so there's no dialogue, no sound. It's all just his music. But thankfully I know the movie really well. And so I know the tone of each scene and I, and that also means there's long stretches of silence, which is also interesting because on the, on the, you know, in the theatrical cut, um, there are times when it's like, Oh, there's music here where there wasn't before or something like that. Um, and so having now, cause I'd heard the music, I think I'd heard his score just by itself, but didn't really take the time to know like what track went where and a lot, a good portion of Ridley Scott's choices were taking something he wrote, but just using it elsewhere. Um, and so here's what I'll say. And it sounds, it might sound a bit sac- sacrilegious, I much prefer Ridley Scott's choices. And mm. yeah, that might be because that's the I don't film that's I know. I sacrilegious, but yeah. I know that, I, I certainly know that West would not be happy with me. Yeah, if you um, worship at the church of Jerry Goldsmith. He in is the one sac- of my favorite composers. Yeah. I think he's amazing. But um, <clears throat> And the score he made is great. But with a couple of notable, notable exceptions, it's a bit too conventional for the movie that is there. And while it would frustrate me if I were him that like two major tracks were just purchased from an old score. He had done for a movie called Freud in 1962 um, directed by John Houston. Um, that they just bought those and used them. So like the scene where the acid is burning through the various levels Okay. that they use something from Freud and then the song, uh, the, the track when, dallas is in the vents that is also from freud so two pretty iconic scenes and really great pieces of music that were not actually written for this and if i were jerry goldsmith i would be very frustrated by that um and understandably so like in a way i almost wish maybe this isn't any better just say like hey you know this thing that you wrote for freud we kind of want that more than the thing you did right but we don't want to just use that track so uh but I do think that there's a certain boisterous quality to uh, Goldsmith's score that but I think belongs in a, a slightly more conventional movie. One of the things about Alien is that on a number of levels, it's very sparse, which is weird because, of course, it's so beautifully art-directed mm-hmm. and all that. But, um, but just the tone of it is just so lonely and quiet, and you just don't want to hear trumpets. Uh, And while he does have this wonderful, sad trumpet that comes in, um, I don't know. So a lot. So whether it be like cutting certain things out or moving things around, I think that for the most part, I think Ridley Scott made the right choice Um, with the notable exception of uh, where Kane is walking around in the egg chamber and. In the final cut, that's pretty much just silent. In the I, I, there might be a little bit uh, uh, a little bit of music. I don't really recall, but it certainly is not what Jerry Goldsmith wrote. And what he wrote is this terrifying, creepy, sparse mm. and stark thing. Where and and West described how he did it. He basically just took he took a harp and played just the very top of it, and just went just did that. But then put it into that echo thing that he used on Patton. Okay. And it just sounds so creepy and genuinely otherworldly. And you just like, I was listening, just listening to it. it was like, this is frightening. I'm frightened now. <laughs> and th- so watching the, the, the egg chamber sequence with that, I was like, why would anybody cut this out? What kind of fucking moron are you? <laughs> like, I got very angry because it's such a wonderful, <clears throat> unique piece of music. And I do wish that um, in a way I wish, i say i wish as though this was the official score it is not um as far as what was used in the film but in a way i look at that scene and i was like that is alien mm. these other things are alien in certain ways but not as much he really seemed to lock into what alien is in that scene and so it was a very you know every once in a while i like to do this kind of thing and just look at things from a, at more of an academic standpoint. Yeah. And I love alien so much that, uh, it's like, it's fun to see it in a slightly different way. And, uh, I'm very happy I did it. It's it's, fun, it's more fun to do those for me,
0: more, more fun to do those sorts of things with a movie, like, like alien that you're oh, really familiar with. Yeah. Like I wouldn't do it like my second viewing. I had like, <laughs> no, that'd be yeah.
1: very strange.
0: Yeah. All right. Um, another 1970s Christmas themed horror movie. Okay. I watched, uh, a real, a real goofy movie call, uh called Whoever Slew Auntie Rue," Uh and it stars Shelley Winters. Oh, all right. Um uh as a rich American widow. I feel like I've used the word widow in this podcast for some reason.
1: You're watching every, some sad movies. Yeah, right every day. movie I
0: watched has had a widow in it almost. Um or a widower. Uh she's a rich American widow living in uh in, in London. Um it's not clear what year it takes place. Um maybe the thirties, uh or whatever. But, um, and she, uh, not only is she a widow, but her daughter died at a young age or disappeared at a young age. We don't know what happened to her, her daughter. Mm-hmm. Oh, we do find out. Um, and, um, we do find out and it's not, it's like, what did that have to do with anything? Yeah. <laughs> That's not what the story's about. Weird. Uh, and we find out really early on and it never comes up again. Yeah. Uh, well, it does anyway. Um, but, um, so every Christmas she, has some kids from the local orphanage come stay with her for like, they have a big dinner on Christmas Eve. They get to sleep over Mm. and she gives them all presents in the morning. Um, and so these two, this creepy brother and sister orphan, like, uh, these kids, um, they, they show up and, uh, yeah, I guess if there's anything interesting about the movie, it's like, who's weirder Auntie Mm -hmm. Rue or these two weird kids. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's really just a, um, uh, not at all subtle, uh, you know, specifically referential um, play on Hansel and Gretel. Oh, okay. Um, that I think is f- for most of the time it's, and it could be that Amazon just, I watched on Amazon and it just has a really bad, like, I don't even know if it if transfers that right I word. It's probably, it looks like it's just like an encode from video. Like mm. it's really ugly looking, unfortunately. So maybe that uh, colored it. Um, no pun intended for me. Um, but most of the time it's just, uh very very over the top and and stupid um but it does have a couple of bits that are like you know suitably perverse this like okay a movie a Christmas themed horror movie called whoever slew Auntie rue I want it to be kind of weird and yeah. I want to occasionally like you know cover my mouth with my you know yeah. and, and gasp And there's you want to be scandalized uh, kind uh, of. yeah yeah there yeah there's a, a Yeah, I don't want to say, but yeah, there's at least one part that I was like, what? Um, But that was that was about it. Um, Moving on to another, I think also 1972 Christmas themed horror movie, the third one of these uh, third and final one of these that I watched over uh, uh, right before New Year's um, or actually I watched this one on New Year's Day uh, when I was recovering. Uh, a movie also available on Amazon called Silent Night Bloody Night. Okay, not Silent Night Deadly Night, right. which you've heard of, but this 1972. It's Silent Night Bloody Night, and it, this one is also not perfect, but it's uh, it's strange enough and creepy enough um, that it's definitely worth a watch. Again, also like whoever sold the interior, it looks ugly. It's not a good uh, transfer, unfortunately, um, and it's clearly a movie was meant to be in one eight five or one six six and it's it's in four by three unfortunately on amazon um but uh it's really interestingly made the the premise is that there's a house a rich person's house on the edge of this town that no one you know caretakers still keep it up but no one has lived there for years the the uh, son or grandson, I think the grandson of the person who built it, who owns it, but has never even been to the town much less to the house has decided to sell it. Uh, so like a lawyer and his girlfriend are coming to oversee the sale and they mm-hmm. stay in the house and it turns out maybe there is someone in the house. Oh. Uh, and this person doesn't want the house to be sold. It doesn't want anyone showing up at the house. So basically the movie is just a series of people showing up at this house and getting killed. Yeah. Um, so it's, again, it's a proto slasher, like, uh, uh, Um, I mean, if you start the modern slasher with Halloween, it's before that. Um, uh, But uh, so much of it is there's great sound design because there's a lot of um, like a lot of horror movies. Uh, It's one of those movie doesn't get talked about more because there's stuff that's clearly influential, like a lot of horror movies there's a lot of stuff of the killer talking to people on the phone, like calling them and sure. being creepy and sort of whispering and saying creepy things. And all that stuff is, uh, really good. The, the, I looked up the voice actor's name the has a crazy name stats, Cotsworth, oh, what's wow. his name. uh, and he's, and just his voice alone, uh, much less what he's saying is really creepy. There's also extended periods that are just voiceover and like almost like, and it, it still shots almost like, to use the proto prefix again, almost like pro Ken Burns type stuff when it's on okay. the history of the house. But then occasionally there will be some shots that have movement in it, but not much, you know, they, and there's, there's one shot that I'm sure in the original, with the transfer screen and you're seeing the entire, uh, aspect ratio. There's a shot that's absolutely beautiful. when we're getting the, the, the flashback to how the owner, the, the grandfather of this guy, how he died, um, which is that he died in a fire accidentally quote unquote accidentally. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you see him run out of the house on flame, you know, in flames and you're hearing the person telling the story saying he was alone in the house and we cut to the inside of the house and there's someone sitting at the piano playing the piano and out in the yard, out the window. It's like across a room, out a window and then across the yard, Mm -hmm. you can barely still see this smoldering body. Mm -hmm. It's a really beautiful and creepy shot. And there's a lot of really cool, cool stuff like that in the movie. Um, and, uh, um, John Carradine I- is in it. Um, okay. Two things I've said right here that are, I've actually p- written down on our potential topics list. Okay. I want to do, cause we haven't done like, uh, for the main episodes, we haven't done like a real academic one lately. I want to do one just going through the history of aspect ratios. I think that would be a really, wow. um, fun episode. Sure. Um, and then I can even
1: think of a guest for it, but,
0: uh, right. okay. Yeah. I actually have one too, mm-hmm. but, um, the other one that I'd like to do is about older actors, like who did horror late in their careers. Cause it seemed to be a big thing. Like yeah. a lot of actors who, as their star fades, they find, um, uh, they, they find, uh, what's the word I'm looking for sanctuary, I guess yeah. in the horror world. Um, and cause yeah, there's so
1: many, I mean, we just talked about, uh, Shelley winters and uh, I think and in some cases probably like John Carradine. Um, it was just like, I'll do what I got to do. I'll be, oh, in, I'm sure. I'll be in anything. It's like, well, this is really cheap over here and but, uh, we can, you but know. I guess, and we should say this when we do the episode, what I find so interesting is how
0: often, how often I think that is the case, but how often these actors being dedicated to their craft yeah. are still doing great work. Yes. In, in, in the movies, you know um, what's the one um, uh, with old Betty Davis uh, watcher in the woods. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not
1: a good, I don't think it's a very good movie. Um, uh, <laughs> I never saw it. Is that one? wait, is it the one that's like Disney?
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. yeah it's a PG, I guess, yeah. horror movie. Um but she's awesome. <laughs> she, of course she is. Yeah. Uh, it, there's a lot of a lot of great stuff um like that. Um uh, and then I have one more um Okay. <laughs> this is out of nowhere. All right. Uh it was just there's a number of reasons I watched this movie from five years ago. I watched Anne Fletcher's *The Guilt Trip*, starring Seth Rogen and Barbara Streisand. Oh, all right. Which was, which has been uh, something I have wanted to watch um, for a long time, and part of it is that at the end of twenty seventeen, I didn't reach my goal of 52 films by women I didn't I, I think I watched 49 films by women in 2017 I that's feel not, very bad that's about not that so bad so I was kind of just going through like what's been on my to watch list that is available to watch on Amazon or whatever that is directed by a woman and so the, the gold trip is something i had been meaning to see and uh, I'm gonna have to say this is an unfairly maligned movie I um, remember hearing uh, okay things about it when okay it I mean I don't want to put too much stock or any stock at all in Rotten Tomatoes scores but it is currently at 38% on Rotten huh. Tomatoes uh but uh, those people don't know uh just good old-fashioned chemistry and laughs yeah. uh, good clean fun apparently when it's right in front of them because it's a very sweet movie and i think ann fletcher's last movie um the one after this hot pursuit i didn't like i think right. largely because as much as i like reese Witherspoon and sofia vergara on their own i think their chemistry was not there and yeah. there was way too much Ad living for people who are not trained comedians, yeah. you know. Whereas with Seth Rogen and Barbara Streisand, you've got people who are naturally funny, I yeah. think, and also good actors and have great chemistry together. So I think they make a ton out of out of just the, the, the smallest, there's a, yeah, like, uh, the Seth Rogen, they go on a road trip together. Seth Rogen has, uh, has developed this product. He's going to all these companies across the country and trying to sell his product to yeah. Kmart's and Costco's and hardware stores and stuff that, uh, and so she's like in the waiting room with him and while he's going to go to his meeting and like, they call him to his meeting and she tries to go with him. He's like, you, you can't come. And then she's like, and then to are walking down the hall and she's like, good luck, honey. And, and he, he goes, thanks, ma'am. Nice meeting you. <laughs> uh, and it's like, it's kind of a corny joke, but yeah. between Barbara Streisand and Seth Rogen, sure. it's really funny. Yeah. And there's a number of things like that. And you've got a lot of great uh, comedic character actors who show up uh, here and there, like uh, Nora Dunn is in it and, and Casey Wilson, um, Brett Cullen, not that he's a comedic actor, but right. uh, Brett Cullen shows up. Um, you've got uh, Adam Scott and Ari Grainer show up as very in very small roles. It's yeah, I, I don't know if it was because I knew the movie wasn't well received. Yeah. Uh, or possibly, I think more likely because I didn't like Hot Pursuit.
1: My expectations were low and this is a perfectly delightful movie. You know, I wonder if somebody like it, Seth Rogen, who sometimes I like him, sometimes I I don't. But I feel like. I feel like he has chemistry with everyone. And I, like, I've, I don't think I've ever seen a situation where I'm like, oh, that's not working. And I wonder <laughs> if it's because he's an improviser. And while you and I don't necessarily love th- the way that goes, but I feel like the instinct is I will adapt to whoever, wherever this other person is, and we will have chemistry.
0: My, my problem with the improvising is not with the improvisers. It's with right. the directors who lean on it too much and leave too much of it yeah. in. Sure. I think you want an actor who can improvise. I think yeah. we saw that. Uh, I, I can't remember if you've seen Girls Trip yet, but the reason mm. the reason Tiffany Haddish is getting so much uh, proclaim is because she's very funny, a great improviser and Malcolm Lee let her run with it. And then kept the stuff in the movie that wasn't, that
1: needed to be, didn't just like, uh, and the movie wasn't two hours and 30 minutes, I would assume.
0: (laughs) No, it is. uh, It's long. I think it is like two hours, a girl's trip, but yeah. Um, yeah, and then the last thing I want to say, uh, it's going back to aspect asp- asp- ratios though. If you're, if I'm paying to rent a movie on Amazon, okay, it should be in the proper aspect ratio. I understand. I guess if something else on airing on HBO or is on Netflix, I don't like it. Sure. But I guess I understand they're giving you whatever the cheapo, even though it's not cheap, it's more expensive to, you know, to make a one seven eight, <laughs> but you have to do it because anyway, um, but I feel like if I'm paying to see the movie, I want to see the whole movie. And this is a movie that was shot in scope and is in one seven, eight on Amazon. And it it looked, you know, I can't tell you what, uh, Oliver Stapleton's cinematography was like really, because the movie looked, it it looked wrong, Hmm. uh, uh, too tight and and clumsy. I, I don't understand why anyone prefers that. Uh, uh, just, they just want it. It just drives me crazy. I'm sorry. Um,
1: Okay, you had a movie and a TV show? Yes. So, um, okay. Uh, I watched Michael Gracie's... Don't judge me, all right? Hey, I just talked about watching The Guilt Trip. Fair enough. Well, don't guilt trip me when I tell you (laughs) that I went and saw The Greatest Showman. Um, Oh, I wouldn't judge you at all. I can't wait to see it. uh, It is... Perfectly fine in many ways. Um, but in in certain musical numbers uh, and certain performances, it is great, and you all, you wish, to like, oh, I wish the whole movie could be this. Um, like, there are times when it's like, if they had pushed this a little bit more, this could have been Moulin Rouge, and it would have been the better for it. Like, if it had really just steered right into the the biggest and most ridiculous kind of spectacle. It's like, well, you know, it is a circus. Just go with that. Yeah. Um. But uh, the song that is getting the most play and rightfully so is called "This Is Me," and it's very and this, the movie itself is very much about like people who are on the outside and that society has said like I've I have no use for you. Um. You know, and it, of course when dealing with barnum circus it's primarily you know human oddities and that sort of thing uh the bearded lady all that sort of thing um but it branches out and there is you know there's a trapeze act and a brother and sister and they are black and so it's like well at this time like they themselves might as well be quote unquote freaks um and so it's like okay it's got some interesting things to say there and then the song this is me it's a very uh emboldening Uh, a very emboldening anthem. And I feel like, I feel like honestly, anybody could hear that song and watch that sequence and feel inspired. You know, when you realize that, well, it's a bunch of, of, you know, circus folk um, singing it. And it's like, and they very much do need to have this attitude of, I'm tired of apologizing for who I am. I'm just going to be me. There's a a world of difference between that and me, Tyler Smith, white, straight, conservative, Christian male, (laughs) cis male, pardon me. Like nothing like the, Oh, and on top of everything, my last name is Smith. Like you really (laughs) don't get more bland than that. And yet even I felt inspired because at some point everybody probably encounters something about themselves they're like oh i wish this were different i wish that i i'm ashamed of this whatever it might be and I, that was really emboldening there's also a really wonderful sequence with uh, zach efron and uh zendaya i don't know if that's how you say her name but uh it's really well choreographed and, and beautiful and hugh jackman of course is it, the greatest showman is reference to barnum but it's mostly uh-huh. Hugh Jackman, who's like a uh, <laughs> full-on song and dance man, and, and he's a he's a delight. But uh, but the rest of the film, it felt oddly. There are times when it's huge spectacle, and times when it seems surprisingly small, but not in a good way, not intimate, small. And uh, but I'm glad I saw it um, because it's just it's not like it's going to be. That's not going to be mov- the movie that brings the musical back. Um, but it definitely is interested in spectacle and interested in like having a very inclusive and inspiring message in the midst of a movie that could be seen as exactly the opposite, which is a guy exploiting people who are different. Um, and uh, I'm sure people would uh, could watch it and still see that and still sure. see that he's exploiting them. But uh, it's trying to do something very different. And I kind of applaud them trying to find that message in this story. So I, I was happy I saw it. I look forward to seeing it. I think the musical is back in as much as it's going to be as much as it's going to and be.
0: has been since, I don't know, Chicago. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, move Rouge was before that. But
1: that was a fringe hit, I guess. Yes, And uh, people uh, musicals, by and large, are crowd pleasers and there are a lot of people that move on to Now, please. <laughs> yeah, um, there were, yeah. There were walkouts in my St. Louis County theater. I have no doubt. Uh, my mom and dad lasted about 10 minutes, uh, <laughs> watching it on video.
0: Um, all right, you had a TV show and then we got to wrap up. I we did. actually
1: are, our guest is outside. Oh, poor guy. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, Jen has been rewatching the office, uh, the American office. And, uh, I've been kind of coming in and out and watching an episode here and episode there. And, uh, I forget how horrendously uncomfortable those early seasons are. Not unlike the British office. Cause oh, okay. like they're really trying to go with that. And the, the scene where like the, I think the Connecticut branch or whatever is brought into the Scranton branch. They're kind of absorbed. And so that's when you get like Rashida Jones and, and that's where it, when uh, Okay. Uh, Ed Helms shows up. Okay. Um, so it's those two and then several other employees who slowly but surely get driven out by Michael, uh, by, and just his desire to include them, but in a very specific way and the, and just the awkwardness of them saying like, I can't stand this. Mm-hmm. Like everybody else has kind of learned to adapt to him, but to have somebody completely new, it, it kind of allows you to see the character through new eyes and by at around the time that you're getting used to him. And then you see them through, see him through their eyes and you're like, this would be virtually impossible to work with this man who tries so badly to be a good person Mm. and try to be the cool boss. And in doing so makes the workplace very, very difficult. Mm. And so, um, and I feel like before the office started to get a little bit, I mean, it was already a little bit silly, but before it started to get really goofy and silly and maybe a bit too, uh, sensitive, In its heart, like you didn't really. I feel like you didn't find a whole lot of the awkwardness, except maybe like standard TV or movie awkwardness. But like in those early seasons seasons of The American Office, I think they were trying to take their cues from the British one and not, and really not let go until you're like, this is almost suffocating to me um, in the best possible way. It's interesting you talk about Rashida
0: Jones and Ed Helms and you're talking about early seasons because to me because I stopped watching like <laughs> right. early in season five maybe I, I think I think of them coming in near the end yeah, of yeah. the show but yeah.
1: it's like not even the halfway point or whatever. Yeah I think it's season three that they come wow. in and uh, yeah and I think it went for eight seasons maybe more yeah but uh yeah so it's still pretty early and then and i've watched all of it and after probably around season five maybe six is when it really starts it's like okay now everything's very broad Mm -hmm. you don't really get a lot of the awkwardness and it's just a different show at that point but in those early seasons still pretty solid who is the
0: most consistently funny supporting character this is a a question that was asked uh, by uh someone i follow on twitter Hmm. consistently funny supporting character like one of the characters from the office like not not Michael or Jim or Pam, but like the ones who were characters. Well, okay, I'm going to tell you thing. off the top of my head. My dark horse pick is Angela.
1: <laughs> okay, all right, <laughs> she's she's. I love good. Angela. Um, here's the thing: it's tough because in some cases it's because of what this person is doing, but also just what they inspire. Toby, <laughs> just there are times when he is just so quiet, and that's the funny part. Right. But the other, the fact of what, like his performance needs to be as small as it is so that Michael's huge reaction to him is so ridiculous and so like it gets to the point that everything about Toby and Toby himself is funny to me